Okay, let's uh, turn in our Bibles again uh, tonight, starting off with a few minutes of uh, faith rest drill to uh, Romans 8.28. And uh, we're going to uh, continue with uh, looking at uh, this verse as to how we would... I, I was going to get the new PowerPoint slide and didn't get it ready, but... Um, the, the, uh, the promise that we're looking at, Romans 8.28, we want to again go through the uh, faith rest drill. But repetition is always needed. Um, remember, faith rest drill is really the, those three steps. is to claim a biblical verse or fragment that circulate somewhere in your mind and then start working with that so that you can consciously believe it. And that may take seconds, it may take hours, that may take a long struggle because you may have it, it may be easy to apply in this situation, you take the same verse, same fragment of scripture and it's a new situation and you have a problem there because it's situation uh, variable. Um, but in Romans 8.28, again, to look at that verse, a verse that most Christians have come across one time or another, that we know that all things work together for good, or God causes all things to work together for good, uh, whether it's, the text reads a little different there, but regardless of which way it reads, its meaning is the same. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And we want to cycle through, and we're going to do this once more time next week, because next week I hope to have the slides ready so you can see, looking at this through the eyes of wisdom and looking at this through the eyes of folly. And when you look at both wisdom and folly, that is, by folly I mean the non-Christian position, the whole thing, uh, that is what convinces you of the certainty of the truthfulness of this thing. Not that Christians believe because we can't think. It's not that we believe because the evidence isn't sufficient. We believe because we know it's true. So beware of that. This is endemic in our culture today, is that the word believe is a synonym for low confidence. If I don't know something for sure, well, I guess I believe it. That's not, that's not what pistevo means in the Greek. Absolutely not. That, that's 20th century, that's reading into the text, the mysticism of our time. That is not what the text means. Pistevo, the Greek verb to believe, is never used as an antonym to knowing. Remember, if uh, you want to remember that in John uh, uh, 20, 31, these are written that why? That you may believe? No. That you may know these things word believe and know, John kind of uses synonymous. These are written that you may know the certain, these kind of things and so on. The, um, the, the if you look through John, you'll see that Pistevo, he uses believe and knowing very synonymously. Another good reference for this idea is Luke. Uh, I've prepared these things, Theophilus, that you may know of a certainty, the things which we believe. Well, if, if belief and knowledge were different, why, why you get that sentence in there? So that's just pure 20th century garbage. doesn't have anything to do with the text. Okay, now in this uh, 
8.28, you know, it's the qualification. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to whom? To those who love God. So, it's not denying that there's a divergence in the future here. It's not saying that there's going to be everything's hunky-dory. If that were true, you wouldn't have to split right here. Everything does not work together for those who reject Jesus Christ. Everything does not work together for the fallen angels. Things work together for only a subset of individuals who are defined as those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to remember the context of Romans 8.20. It doesn't work. Romans 8.20 doesn't work if you hold to this idea that good and evil somehow are all mixed together and everything's going to come out fine in the end. That's not what this verse is all about. The verse has to be taken in its theological context. So, we know that God causes all things together to... Uh, for, uh, works all things together for good. Now, the other thing to remember, we got into this last time, is that to give content to this, we want to remember that a verse of Scripture that, if I can draw a picture, which I tried to do in PowerPoint and didn't get it done today, if, if you think in terms of the create-a-creature distinction, remember that, biblically speaking, you always have the create-a-creature distinction. You never get away from it. From all eternity, we'll never get away from it. Creature, creature's always the creature. The creator's always the creator. And they don't mix. The only time they come close to mixing is in the person of Jesus Christ, and even his two natures don't mix because, remember, the doctrine of hypostatic union says undiminished deity and true humanity united, and remember this little phrase in there? United in one person, qualified without confusion. That means the creator-creature distinction is not even erased in the person of Christ. So, we have the creator and the creature. Now, in, our, uh, in this view, this is the biblical view, you have verses like Rome, uh, Genesis 8, uh, I think it's 8.25, where it says that uh, Abraham, remember that's the one where he's bargaining over Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's the essence of what we heard. Abraham didn't know all the things about Sodom and Gomorrah. Didn't know all the deal about God judging the place didn't know all the facts about the situation, didn't know God's larger plan for the Gentiles versus Israel. But he knew one thing, that the judge of all the earth shall do right. And that's the resolution. We don't know all the details, but we know that the judge of all the earth shall do right. It doesn't say that he's finished doing. It says that he shall, future tense, he shall do right. So that's the confidence. Now, what does that mean here in terms of this diagram? It means that that resolution occurs at the creature level, not at the creator level. And it may be that we will never know all the details of why he did something and didn't do something else. We may never know why we've lost a child or why there was some horrible accident or why there was some horrible suffering here, there, or elsewhere. We may never know. We may know, but we may never know. But the point is that whether we know or we don't know, there is resolution. It is at the creator level, not the creature level. And we see next week when we go do another faith rest drill in the same verse, same fragment, 
I'll show you what the unbeliever says and why he cannot resolve the problem. Why in folly you cannot resolve this problem. And why the only answer to this is walking by faith. This does not mean there isn't a resolution. The point we're saying is that God has omniscience. And that omniscience means that he has a perfect plan that rationally fits and he can argue the case with total conviction before any forum. No smart aleck lawyer is going to outmaneuver God on this situation. No PhD philosopher, whether he teaches at Princeton or he doesn't, is going to outmaneuver God in this area of suffering. God has a perfect plan, and that is his omniscience. So we trust absolute rationality. It isn't that he has a weak excuse for what he's doing, and he's kind of hiding it and keeping it to himself. See, that's the world's image. As one uh, Princeton philosopher put it, uh, not uh, many years ago, uh, Walter Kaufmann, who was a, uh, one of the most uh, foremost atheists in the United States, Princeton tends to do that. It was only the, uh, the college that Jonathan Edwards started for people to teach the Word of God. And, of course, they specialize in all the intellectual weirdos in the United States flock to Princeton, probably because of the salary there. And so the, at Princeton, this Kaufman said, the Christian position is that God can do anything he wants as long as he gives a lollipop at the end of history. And it was his sarcastic reference to the fact of resolution in the future. But it's more than the lollipop involved here. There's the whole reason for existence that's involved here. And Kaufman's only uh, uh, replacement or surrogate for it was if you happen to be lying in your deathbed, rotting of cancer, uh, the only uh, resolution you have is to think that, make up a purpose for it. Kaufman says that you have to make up the reason for life. Well, that really helps. That really is a real boost to your immune system when you're dying, uh, struggling with some sickness or disease, to be told, well, there's no reason for it. You make it up by yourself. So that's what I'm talking about. You see, when we go through these drills, we have to understand what the other side says because Satan always wants to tempt us that grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Well, we walk across the fence and see is the grass green. No, it isn't. It's all burned out. Satan's gun, he's firing an unloaded gun here. It's just an intimidation tool. There's no bullets in the thing. He doesn't have any bullets. He doesn't have any resolution to the problem. All he can do is criticize, 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 and fill our minds with all kinds of spiritual toxins about God is a meanie, God restrains, God's nasty, God has nothing else to do except to make us miserable, and so forth. That's the, that's the kind of toxin that permeates. And we have to get around that by doing the same thing that Abraham had to do. We rest in the fact that God has a perfect plan. And last time, we, we mentioned some rationales and we said there are two families of rationales that w were given in scripture we had four reasons why suffering occurs because it's directly caused by creature sin creature rebellion and we went through those four we'll go all through them tonight but remember we had four reasons why and then we said there's also times when suffering appears in the life and there's not related, there's no relation to what we have personally done. And there's five reasons for that, at least five. 
so you can't come to these situations and think that there's no reason. There's nine right there. And that's just the starting list. So when we meditate about what is God doing in our lives, what is the thing with this mess I've got in my hands, we've got at least nine ways to go right there. And those don't exhaust it because we already know something else that the non-Christian can't understand. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ resolves part of the suffering problem. Because in the cross of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ died, he resolved the tension that you see in the Old Testament between God's grace and mercy on one hand and his holy, just wrath on the other. And the Old Testament saints had no resolution of this problem. They had a worse problem than we do. Because on the one hand, they knew God had burning holiness from Mount Sinai, from Isaiah's vision, from Ezekiel's vision. They knew this. They knew, and David says in the Psalms, Lord, I can't, no man can walk into your presence and be justified. They knew that they were dealing with a holy, righteous God. And on the other hand, they pled that God would somehow be merciful, but they also knew from the lamb sacrifices there couldn't be any mercy without some resolution. But they didn't have the resolution. It wasn't clear to them. Well, the cross is the resolution, and that's why Paul in Romans says that he may be what and what? That he may be just and that what? That he may justify. And that's Paul's point. The cross resolves a major theological dilemma. So if the first advent of Christ resolved at least half the problem, what do you suppose the second advent is going to show us? And as we get into the uh, doctrines of the session of Christ associated with that, we'll see a hint at the way history is going and maybe a little bit more insight about what God is doing and how he resolves these matters. Okay. Um, so, the third step of the faith rest uh, thing is that we meditate upon this until it clicks. And it, 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 it's up to you and your situation. You have to work it through. But there comes a time when you can, there's a peace that comes and you can rest in that peace. And at that point, you're trusting. At that point, you're walking by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God and that's the Word of God. You've heard it and you've digested it and you believe it. That's simple. So there's the faith, faith rest trail. Father, we thank you for our time here and we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us as we move forward tonight into uh, these in-depth and um, amazing truths about the ascension and session of our Lord. And we pray that you would empower us Give us a clear focus and that we can pay attention to the details that you have put so graciously in the pages of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, tonight I said we we're going to start with the Old Testament pictures of the ascent and session of Jesus Christ. And we're going to start with uh, uh, Psalm 68. So let's go. We, we started Psalm 68, so that psalm that we're going to look at and remember we were holding the place with one hand in Psalm 68 and we were turning the New Testament and holding Ephesians 4 with the other hand, trying to show how Paul used Psalm 68 in Ephesians 4. So, turn to Psalm 68 and we want to look at how to interpret that passage and then we'll come backwards, uh, come forwards rather, to the uh, New Testament and pick up at uh, Ephesians 4. Why are we doing this? Again, what's 
what am I doing here by going through these Old Testament passages? Here's the deal. When the apostles saw Jesus Christ rise from the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Ascension, they only observed him probably for minutes. And then it says he was enveloped in a cloud. Now, whether he rose 100 feet, 200 feet, 500 feet, 1,000 feet, we don't know. But their physical vision was cut off. So, when Jesus Christ was taken up in the cloud, at that point, nobody has any empirical observation of what's going on. Right? Nobody knows. The disciples were not seeing the throne of God then. All they saw was Jesus, and then they didn't see him. And then there were these two angels standing by, telling them that as Jesus Christ has risen, so he will return. And that establishes for all time that the return of Jesus Christ is not some spiritual event. It's not A.D. 70's destruction of Jerusalem. The return of Jesus Christ is exactly the place where he ascended. He's going to come back in a physical body just like he ascended in a physical body, resurrection body. So, in Psalm 68, Psalm, 7, uh, Psalm 2, Daniel 7, Psalm 110, these are passages that the Holy Spirit led the church fathers to so that through these passages they could glimpse the unseen thing going on here with the ascent and session of Christ. These are the only pictures that we've got in the New Testament. So what we're doing now, uh, tonight we're going to work our way through some of these Old Testament passages. It's going to be demanding because you have to pay attention to the details in these Old Testament texts. There's a massive amount of stuff in here. And we're going to have to unfortunately go through it faster than I would like, but we'll never get through uh, these passages if we don't do it this way. So go to Psalm 68 and you'll see that in Psalm 68, verse 17 and verse, uh, verse 18, actually, Psalm 68, verse 18, that's the verse that the Apostle Paul picks up and uses when he discusses, of all things, spiritual gifts in the church and, and links our spiritually gifted people in the church. He links those spiritually gifted people to this, whatsoever is going on here with the ascension and session of Christ. So, we're dealing with the inner Advent period, and I remember the last three or four weeks, we've, we've kind of cautioned you on the inter Advent period is something that's opened out now in history. In the Old Testament, the two Advents were together. And when you get in the pages of the New Testament, because Jesus Christ was rejected as the Messiah, now... He can't fulfill the first and second advent together. So now we look at it sideways and these two events come apart and lo and behold, now we have an inter-advent age. And there are characteristics in this inter-advent age that the Old Testament knows nothing of. Knows nothing of. Now, it knows something of the fact that the two advents are different. But there's very, very little detail about this thing, this age that's stuck in here that we live in. So it behooves us to pay attention to how the apostles cope with this. Because all of a sudden, all their hopes go up in the sky. You know, Jesus is gone. It's pretty amazing. He rose from the dead, but then he doesn't stay around. He disappears. He goes somewhere in his resurrection body. And we said that the New Testament is quite consistent in that he ascended through heaven's plural until he 
was he arrived physically and geometrically at wherever the throne of God is. You know, you know, is it in the Milky Way? Is it somewhere else? Is it in the nth dimension? We don't know. We know, however, that the Lord Jesus Christ exists at a point in space because his body is a point in space, and his humanity exists at a point in space, because his body is, you know? Six or foot or less tall, weighs so many pounds. That's the physical resurrection body of Jesus Christ. And it's somewhere. So, uh, chapter, uh, Psalm 68 is one of those Old Testament passages. Now, in this passage, it says that thou hast ascended on high. And since the addressee of the psalm is Jehovah, what it means is that Yahweh has ascended on high. Yahweh, or the Lord, has led captive captives. You have received gifts, or booty, among men, even among the rebellious. So, God has ascended. And the idea, um, if in verse 24 you go down, you can see there's a procession that David has in view. They have seen thy procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into these sanctuaries. The singers went on, the musicians after them, and so on. So you turn back to Psalm 68, verse 1, and you realize it's a Davidic psalm. It wasn't written in the exilic period, so we have to go back and rely. Here's where, see, Old Testament history counts. And those who have followed on Thursday nights over the few years we've been together, you now know where you can place that psalm. You know that it's happening during the period of the rise and reign of David. And that's significant because what does the rise and reign of David represent when you collect all these events together that were going on here. If you look at the um, chart, what started happening with Exodus? At Exodus, the pagan world power, Egypt, was destroyed, and the Jews came out through Mount Sinai, the conquest and settlement, onto the rise and reign of David. So now we have David's reign as sort of the completion of this conquest period. Question is, what is David doing here? In verse 1 of Psalm 68, he, he makes a certain um, phrase. It's a hortatory. He, he asks the uh, choir director uh, for the Solomonic worship, the temple worship that he was writing this for, uh, they sing out, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. One thing we need to do here is avoid a common problem, and that is thinking of this in purely poetic terms, divorced from history. There, there is a historical thing that David has on his mind here. This is not just flinging words out to make up a, psalm, uh, to make up a song to sell for next week. This, this is a, a reference to something. So we want to go back in the Old Testament to find analogs to verse 1, because that verse occurs elsewhere, that same kind of let God arise. So if you'll turn to Numbers chapter 10, we do a little detective work, because we want to understand the thrust of why Paul quotes Psalm 68 when he had the whole other rest of the Old Testament to quote. Why quote this place? Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. 
Numbers is one of those books nobody reads, so it's, it's where there's no fingerprints on the edge of the pages. Numbers chapter 10, last two verses. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let thy enemies be scattered. Ah. So now what's the context of this kind of language? What was going on in Numbers chapter 10, verse 35? It was when the Israelites broke camp on their conquest and the priests would lift, they'd take the tabernacle down and if you've been up the, the road here to the tabernacle at the Lancaster area, um, you can imagine that whole thing comes down and there's the, there's the ark. So the priests get on this ark and what's on the ark but the cherub, the cherubim. And what's that? That's the throne of God. It's a model of the throne of God. So here they are, they pick this thing up, and they begin to move with it. And the whole camp moves with them. It's the vanguard here going on. Well, that's the picture of what is meant when it says, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And what were they doing? They were marching in conquest for the land. So, we understand a little bit more about what Psalm 68 is talking about. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12, here we are with the ark again. Except this time, it's not in Moses' day. You know, it's uh, four centuries later, David's time. It was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom, and that all belongs to him on account of the ark of God. And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of a trumpet. Now, this is one of those amazing places in the Old Testament text where we have one of the most solemn, serious, pieces of literature mixed with one of the funniest and almost street humor. And it shows you how the Holy Spirit uh, records history of people and their warts and all. So here we have this ark, very sacred. I mean, this is the most sacred, solemn procession going on. David is leading in his excitement over seeing the end of the conquest Finally, the ark is going to have a place to rest, and David knows by divine inspiration that this is the final resting place. Once the ark is in Jerusalem, a certain part of the forward history has, has finished. We're at a milestone now. So he's dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, and so David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark. The Lord was shouting in the sound of trumpet. David had a, had a lot of sense of culture, which he passed on to his son Solomon in a very, apparently very thorough way, because it was Solomon who then developed a lot of the temple worship. But he patterned it and got most of the ideas from his dad. His dad wrote the hymn book, basically for the temple, and his father got a lot of the musicians together that Solomon later used. So David had a sense of music. 
Remember the two qualifications prior to his becoming king? Two qualifications. He could fight and he could play the harp. He could, he could lead in, in worship, music, and, and he was a musician and a warrior. The two were together in David's career. Those are his two gifts. So David and all the house were doing this. And then it happened, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David at Michal, the daughter of Saul looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering, the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins. Now you watch that because that's reflected in Psalm 68. Then all the people departed each to his house. And when David returned to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and says, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamely uncovers himself. The ephod, see, uh, was a little loose at the bottom. And, and it was. He probably did expose himself during the worship service. And so his wife, being the prim and proper daughter of Saul, couldn't stand this. Uh, and so she let him have it when he got home. So he turns around and he lets her have it. And so David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. So there's a quick put down. Um, he chose me above your father and above his house. I am the Davidic dynasty and I've replaced your father's dynasty. And to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will be more lightly esteemed than this. And I will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. And the text concludes with Michal never had a child. So, obviously, the Lord defended David's behavior in this situation. And it goes to show you something kind of interesting that there's a certain radicalness to the Lord in these, in these situations and that people can often have uh, good uh, feelings of what's proper and it may not fit what the Holy Spirit has in mind. So... We're not going to justify all the language in the text and so on. I'm just saying that it's kind of an interesting humorous side note to this very sacred ceremony that's going on here. So the ark comes up, and it's obviously coming up to Jerusalem. So it's ascending, and it's coming up. Psalm 68 is David's visionary commemoration of this event. In other words, he... It's, it's just like Psalm 22, you remember? Psalm two, we don't know what, what the trigger was for Psalm 22, but obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he prefigured the crucifixion of Jesus Christ there. Well, in Psalm 68, again, you have this visionary empowerment of, in David in, his, in his, his musical and in his poetic skill. And now the Lord lets him see something greater is going on. Just as that physical ark came up to the physical Mount Zion, God will one day reign on earth. And David never get he always has that vision that at this point it's not just David, it's not just his little kingdom that's going on here, but his little kingdom is a step toward that ultimate kingdom that God will one day bring on the earth. 
Okay, so that's Psalm 68, and that's the context of Psalm 68. Well, let's come back over to the New Testament then, and let's see if we can understand what that hints at. And we'll come back to this theme a lot before we're finished with the Ascension and Session. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Now, one of the things in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, uh, that's obvious right from the start is what? Look at verse 8. Think of what we've just said. Think of what that ark represented. Think of what Psalm 68 talking about. And what stunning thing, without getting into all the details, what do you notice immediately by way of implication? If Paul in verse 8 is citing Psalm 68, 18, what does that imply about how he viewed Jesus Christ? Now, here's one for your Jehovah's Witnesses, friend. They say the New Testament never says Jesus is God. What do you think this is? This is a psalm that speaks of God ascending Mount Zion in the cherubs on the top of the ark. And who takes God's place when the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 68? Who does he replace Jehovah with? Jesus Christ. Now, folks, this is an example of the radical nature of the New Testament that blind people can't see. And it's sad. In their unregenerate mentality, they just can't bring themselves to believe that this man, this human Jewish carpenter, could possibly, by monotheistic Jews, be placed into a position that God himself is in. See? This replacement. It's either blasphemy or it's truth. And this is why, in the Gospels, he picked up rocks. See, the Jewish skeptics in the New Testament times knew enough of their Bible to know exactly what's going on here. That's why Paul got beat up. You don't walk into a Jewish group of people, monotheists, and take a human being and stick in the hand of God without getting your, your brain, your hair parted with a few rocks. That's, that happens. Because to them, this is an act of blasphemy. Unless Jesus really is God incarnate. And then it's not blasphemy, it's revelation. So you can't have it both ways. Either this is a blasphemous statement or it's a very blessed revelation. But it can't be neglected. It can't be, oh, huh, that's interesting, and move on. Can't do that. Not if you understand the verse and can read. Of course, we have people who can't read ballots, so I guess we have people who can't read Bibles either. In verse 9, he expounds this and he begins to interpret the application of what is going on at Christ's session. So look at the analogy. The analogy now that Paul is making is a powerful one. It's an analogy between the whole... The, in the Old Testament, God comes down at Sinai. He's with Israel during the conquest. And at the give, put, bring of the ark up on Mount Zion it typifies the finished and completion conquest. Now, it wasn't really finished in the Old Testament, but David prophetically sees it as finished when Yahweh, in the form of his ark, is physically placed in his temple on Mount Zion. That is said to be 
Psalm 68. That is said to be analogous to the Son of Man who comes from where? I will ascend up into heaven where I was before. Remember his statement? So, there's an analogy here with Jesus Christ ascending and seated back on the Father's right hand. So, there's an identity going on between Jehovah God of the Old Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament. It is inescapable, apart from all the little arguments over what the verse says. This is, this is basic. Now, Paul goes on and he's trying to apply it to a problem in the congregation. And this is one of those neat, eloquent things that Paul surprises us with again and again in the pages of the New Testament. Uh, here he is dealing with a, a, what we would call a, uh, you know, an organization problem in the local congregation. And he brings up heavy theology like this to cope with it. He doesn't run to some franchise uh, how to grow a purpose-driven church or something. Sort of analogy to McDonald's franchise. You buy one of the books and it tells you everything you need to know about how to grow a church. None of that stuff here in the New Testament. He's going back to basic theology to deal with these things. So we now have, on the one side... Yahweh, or Jehovah God, and the other, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, by this analogy, are considered to be identical. So there's a forthright declaration. Now, he's going to deal with details. In verse 9 and 10, is one of those, another little rare instance, this tells us how Paul would have taught the Bible. Because he's, he's quoted an Old Testament passage, and now verses 9 and 10 shows you actually what he was doing. Here's how he would comment. He would read an Old Testament passage, which he did. Now in verse 9 and 10, he expounds that passage. And he tells the interpretation of that passage. It's not an introduction, three points in a poem. It is an exposition of details of the text. And he says in verse 9... This expression, or this phrase, he ascended. See what he's doing? He's commenting word by word from the text of Scripture. And if people fell asleep in the congregation and fell down, you know, he tried to get first aid to them, which he did in the book of Acts. People did go to sleep because Paul spoke more than 20 minutes. I was amazing. It would shock American Christians. You actually had a sermon that lasted longer than 20 minutes here. Sometimes it lasted three hours. And people did fall asleep. But Paul would just crank on. And so in verse 9, he goes through the details and he says, he ascended. What does this mean? Except that he also descended in the lower parts of the earth. We won't have time to, whether that's talking about subterranean or whether it's the earth itself and so on. Well, that's a whole other story. But I just want you to see the drift. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who descended, in verse 10, who, he who is descended is himself also the same one who ascended far above all the heavens. See that same phrase? Remember we studied it in 1 Peter 3.22, we studied it in Hebrews 4, and Ephesians 1. Now it says, he ascended far above all the heavens that he may control, fill all things, means he is in authority over all things, which means before he ascended, he wasn't in authority. And how do we know the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't in authority before he ascended? Anybody think of one instance in particular in his ministry? 
when he was walking the face of this earth before he went to the cross that shows he wasn't in control of all things. What happened when Satan came to him? And what was Satan's offer? That I will give you the kingdoms of the world. Did Jesus say they aren't yours? No. They are his. And that's why we as Christians have to be careful. When we look at the political structure, we see corruption, we see this going wrong and that going wrong, and so on. Well, of course. Who's in charge? So, the point here is that Jesus Christ had to earn, by his obedience, he earned his position. Right here. That's when he attained the right, similar to David, when he was accepted at the Father's right hand. And here is where all power is given to him, not during his earthly ministry when he had to deal with Satan. So something significant goes on here at the session of Christ. And that something significant opens a whole door to the meaning of the church age and what is going on. All right, we're going to go to another Old Testament passage tonight. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. We went through Daniel 7, incidentally, you remember, way back when we were going through the latter part of the Old Testament, part 4 of the series, and we uh, talked about premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. Well, in Daniel 7, it's one of those great passages where the Lord Jesus Christ is seen in the Old Testament. And he is seen in the context of the four kingdoms. So we're going to go to another passage now. This is Daniel 7. And remember the four kingdoms in the Old Testament that Daniel saw. Anybody remember what they were? First one was the Babylonian kingdom, right? Then the Medio Persian kingdom, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. Those are those four kingdoms in Daniel. And who was Daniel? Remember, he isn't listed in the Hebrew Old Testament as a prophet. He is listed in the wisdom literature because Daniel was a man involved in full-time political career. He was an advisor to the monarchs of both Babylon and later Media Persia. So he was sort of a, a person probably that would correspond to like Henry Kissinger or uh, Baker or Christopher, somebody like that. More like a you know, Secretary of State kind of person. And so he, he was involved in the intimacies of daily political structures. And it caused him to, as a Jew, wonder where Israel fits in the context of international relations. And God, the Holy Spirit, opened up this vision to him and several times. So, in verse 15 of chapter 7, after he sees the vision, and we're going to revisit this passage. Uh, I mentioned this in the notes that are coming up. But we're going to spend, spend more time and, and point out something. I just mentioned this in passing tonight, but watch in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept... Uh, upsetting me or kept on my mind. I couldn't get them out of my mind. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him the meaning of all this. Now, that's an interesting statement. And just in passing, make a note that apocalyptic passages of Scripture, such as Zechariah, Daniel, and Revelation, 
will inevitably have an interpreting angel somewhere in the text, either singular or plural. There will be interpreting angels. And that tells you something else. When Daniel, uh, Zechariah, Ezekiel, John, when they are treated to these wonderful visions of heaven, they themselves do not understand what it is they're seeing. They see a vision, and they reach around, and the angels are standing there, and the angels teach them the meaning. The meaning does not come directly to these guys that look at the vision. The meaning is given to them. So this is very typical. Don't interpret verse 16 as this is something odd that's happening to Daniel. This is typical for an apocalyptic vision. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So these are the interpreting angels, the hermeneutical angels. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom for all, forever, for all ages to come. And that references that end time when the good and evil are separated and God's kingdom comes. So there's a fifth kingdom on here. Fifth kingdom. And by the way, that's why, those of you who are history buffs, if you read the history of 17th century England and you read about the Puritan era and when Cromwell took over England and ruled as a Lord Protector, one of the groups that formed his political base was a group called the Fifth Monarchy Men. Now you know where that title came from. The Fifth Monarchy Men were a group of believers inside the Puritan community that looked to this kingdom. There's a debate whether they were post or pre-mill, but the point was that's what that title means, the Fifth Monarchy, Fifth Monarchy Men. And I desired to know the meaning of the fourth beast, and you go into the fourth beast, and we, we went through that three or four, two or three years ago. And verse 21, and I kept looking, and that horn, the fourth beast, was waging war upon the saints and overpowering them. So it's a case when this empire, the tail end of this Roman empire, possession of the kingdom. That's the return of Christ. Though it's not clear here, because remember, here at this point in history, the first and second advents are all, all mixed. So it's, it, the, the visualized prophecy as an accordion, and it's all compressed when it's given. And then as history goes on, boom, 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 boom. This kind of thing happens. Oh, it's more detail. Oh, geez. Oh, wow. First and second advent are spread apart. And you, you begin to see all these details. And then all of a sudden you realize, oops, we're going to see this later uh, as we go through this year and, and possibly in the next year, is the end of the church age, all of a sudden that second advent of Christ starts getting expanded. Now we've got the rapture and we've got the second advent and they're separate. And that's typical. That's what happens as prophecy unfolds. So here, everything is compressed. But the big idea is, is undeniably there, and that is the kingdoms of this world. These are not just spiritual kingdoms. These are physical, historical, political kingdoms. And they are going to be defeated, which means that in verse 22, that refers to a historical, political, and physical kingdom ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ.
That's what we mean when we say the millennium and the eternal state. Thus, he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another will arise after them. He will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High. He will wear down the saints of the Holiest One. He will intend to make alterations in the times and the law. They will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, two and a half years. But the court will sit for judgment, and dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever, and then sovereignty and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom of the whole heaven shall come upon the earth. Well, earlier in the passage, there's an expansion of verse 22. You look back. We wanted to look at this part of the passage just to get the running flow of this thing. Now, in verse 22, it says, The Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of... Now, watch it. Of saints. Plural. Okay? So, everybody agrees. Verse 22 is talking about a group of people. Now, if you turn back up, verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, this is a repeat vision, and this is something else about apocalyptic literature that you want to remember and write down sometime. That is, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, it is established. And in the scriptures, you will often see God repeat himself two times. This is why in Joseph's story that Mike is going through, every part of that Joseph story, if you look at it carefully, has dualism in it. There are two dreams he has when he's a teenager. There's the two interpretations while he's in jail. There are the two encounters with his brothers. The, word, the two is always in there because by the mouth of two or three witnesses it is established. So in Daniel 7, there's two times that this vision occurs. And verse 9 says, oh, verse 8, while I was contemplating the horns, another horn, a little one, came up and three of the first horns are pulled out. This is all talking about the end times and the political structures that exist. And this horn possessed eyes like the, uh, light eyes, like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts or blasphemies. I kept looking up until thrones were set up. Now, here's the here's detailed version of what later happens in verse 22. I, until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, I told you, when you looked at verse 22, to be careful. Who were the two things, people, you saw back down verse 22? Ancient of days and what? People. A plural set. Not an individual. A set of people. Now, look at verse 9. The ancient of days, so there's the correspondence in verse 22. The ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like wool. The hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, its body destroyed, and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. The idea here is the Babylonian kingdom ended, but its influence lasted for a time. 
the, Mesop the Media Persian Empire ended, but its influence lasted forever. I went over this back two or three years ago, remember. The Greeks, the empire was ended, but their influence continued. What was the influence of Babylon? Primarily economic. They were vicious in their inflation of currency. They were currency debauchers. The Medio Persians contributed multipluralism. They were the guys that united, tried to unite the whole world into one culture because Persia bridged between India, the subcontinent of India, look at on map, and the Middle East. And then you have the Greeks who contributed rationalism and logic, and the Romans that contributed law and political power. So all these influences remained. But the fourth kingdom, of course, when it, the Roman Empire is revived again and continues on to the last days, then these influences, when this is shut down, then all the influences eradicate. That's what the whole idea here is about. But here's the passage that refers and sets up the idea of the session and ascension, ascension and session of the Lord Jesus. I kept looking in the night, visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The word destroyed is the same word in verse 11 referred to of the four kingdoms. In other words, this will historically continue. It will never, ever be destroyed. But in verse 13 and 14, we don't read of a people, per se. We read of a new one that's called, in verse 13, the Son of Man. Okay? That's the title, the cognomen, that the Lord Jesus Christ used of himself. And when the... You remember that incident when he was talking to the high priest at one of his trials? And he said, you'll see the Son of Man coming. And they just said, he shouted blasphemy. Blasphemy. Why? Because they knew Daniel 7. And Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes to God in His holiness in the presence of God and receives the kingdom. Now, previously in chapter 7, verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, each one of those kingdoms had an animal associated with it. So watch the progression. The Son of Man is the fifth kingdom, fourth kingdom, third kingdom, second kingdom, first kingdom, animal, fourth kingdom, animal, third kingdom, animal, second kingdom, animal, first kingdom, fifth kingdom, man. Now, think about what that implies. If these emblems of a political structures are animals, what do animals not have that man has? Right from the Genesis 1. Image of God. And what the Holy Spirit is indicating about the political power structures of history is that they are subhuman. They are not what men should be like. They are low class. And that's why as Christians we are never totally victims of a political process. Because we don't look to a political process because political processes as they exist in the fallen world are animal-like. They lack conscience. They lack the higher qualities of life. It is only this fifth kingdom 
led by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing about all these animals is that they reference two things. Each animal equals two things. Equals the leader plus the people. Leader plus the people, leader plus the people, leader plus the people. And the Son of Man, therefore, and that's why I said you've got to interpret in light of verse 22. The Son of Man figure is both the leader and the people. The Son of Man includes the people and the kingdom. So in the New Testament, when Jesus Christ identifies himself, if you'll turn in your notes on page 10 now, we want to tie this together. Look at the last two paragraphs on page 10 of the notes. How is the imagery of Daniel 7 used in the New Testament to interpret Christ's session? One way the New Testament uses this imagery is in teaching that Christ received full authority over the earth when he came to the Father on the throne. Just as the Son of Man was given dominion and glory in a nation, Christ was given glory and honor at his session. Now, if you had time, we'd go through. You should do this anyway on your own. I give you gospel references when Christ says, All power is given unto me. Now learn, that is not a random statement. When Jesus Christ said, all power is given unto me, he was consciously and deliberately utilizing the Daniel 7 imagery. He was placing himself in the role of the Son of Man, and he said, now, you read it in Daniel 7, and now I am the Son of Man, and I receive all the power and dominion and glory. You see how arrogant Christ must have been if he wasn't God? He's not a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis was right. He's on the level of a person that says he's a poached egg. Lunatic. He's on the level of a lunatic or he's a son of God. And you remember that when you get into conversations about Jesus Christ. That anybody that says that Jesus Christ isn't God is essentially calling him an idiot and a lunatic. Nobody likes to admit that. No, I, I don't really believe it. I, I think Jesus is a good teacher. No, he is. And he's a, ludic he's a ludicrous lunatic. That's what you're saying. Oh, no, 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 that's not what I'm Yes, it is what you're saying. And then you have to challenge them to read the text if they are literate type person. Christ at the session is thus recognized by the Father as the king of the final kingdom. He is set to gain what Christ, what Satan tried to offer him during the temptations. You see the full circle? Satan comes to him at the temptation level. Remember the impeccability issue we discussed about? There was the great temptation. Is Christ going to get the kingdoms from the hand of Satan, or is he going to get the kingdoms from the hand of who? The Ancient of Days. But he can't get the kingdom from the Ancient of Days unless he dies and goes, does the Father's will and pays for the sins of the world and ascends into heaven. Then he gets the Son. And he, he, that's, that's a model he gives to us as obedient servants, that the reward comes by obedience. A second way the New Testament uses the Daniel 7 imagery is in showing that the kingdom, which ultimately is given to Christ, will be made of all people, nations, and languages that mean it's not just Jews. So when Jesus takes the cognomen, Son of Man, he has reference to a ministry to Gentiles outside of Israel. Finally, in ver on, on page 11 of the notes, 
Note this next thing, very important about Daniel 7 and its application here. And I'm running over for a minute or two, but let me finish this chapter, this paragraph. Finally, a third way the New Testament uses the Son of Man imagery, and I want you to note very carefully this point, is to reveal by its negative use, its non-use of Daniel 7, details the postponement of the full exercise of Christ's session authority. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man image represents the people of the kingdom as well as the king. Remember? Animals equal leader plus people. So if the Son of Man equals people, uh, leader plus people, where's the people? People aren't there yet in history. If Christ is the king, he must have a people in order to bring the fifth kingdom into existence. Until that people exists, there can't be a kingdom. Moreover, Daniel 7 shows that the nations must be judged, the satanic beast must be slain, and all remnants of the previous four kingdoms set aside prior to the actual reign of the Son of Man. By omitting specific references to these details, the New Testament shows the session did not fulfill all of this imagery. So just watch that. You'll see this pattern again and again. The New Testament picks up these images, but it takes only part of them. It does not take all of them. And you can easily see now why all millennialism gets started. Because see what the Amil does is he comes in here and he says, Oh, Daniel 7. Well, it must mean that the beast is already judged. If Christ has received dominion and power, the beast is already judged. The kingdom's here. <laughs> this is the kingdom. We've got a problem. But, but it's because of carelessness in interpreting details of the text. The apostles never say, they never say that the, the kingdoms of this world have been judged yet. They look forward to that. See, it's the inter-advent period of prying apart the details. Some of the details occur in the first advent, some of the details occur in the second advent. And that's the idea you have to see. Just because Daniel 7 imagery is used, it doesn't mean it's completely fulfilled yet. It's beginning to be fulfilled. So Christ is identified front end, he is the Son of Man. He is the one who will do this. Has he completed it yet? No, he hasn't. What is he doing in the church age? He's doing something. And that's the intriguing thing we want to answer as we move into this chat. What is Jesus Christ doing today at the Father's right hand? He's not resting. He's doing something. And that's the, that's the secret of what the Christian life is all about. How is he What's he doing to get to that final kingdom? Father, we thank you for the text tonight, and we thank you that you have provided for our needs as believers. We thank you for these great images that you take us in our vision above the, the, the ebbs and flows and chaoses of history. We can look above history and see your magnificent plan that will include people from all cultures, but it will be people from all cultures who worship the one King, the one true living Savior, and the Word of God. In whose name we pray. Amen. We have our time here for feedback and Q&A, so I'm open to uh, questions. Discussion here. Debbie, it gets pretty barren when you're not around. (laughs) 
Oh yeah, it was. Behave better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, the question is about the David passage and the ephod. Um, uh, what Debbie says is, is true, that, that part of the Michal response was that um, David was acting in a priestly fashion. Uh, the ephod was a priestly garment. And uh, besides not... It, see, in the Old Testament, the king... Uh, the, the, the office of king was segregated away from the priests. It was sort of like our division of powers. You know, we have executive, legislative, and judicial. Um, uh, my wife and I were talking about separation of powers the other day, and I was pointing out that, that Switzerland uh, actually has a better separation of powers than we do. You know what the Swiss did to make sure that the powers were separated? They, they actually put the legislature in a different city. Uh, so they had the judicial over here, the legislature over here, and the executive over here to make sure that everybody understood that these are three separate and distinct elements of government. Um, but the wearing of the ephod, um, uh, Debbie points out, well, Michal, as a matter of pride, she was a very prideful woman, and she got a lot of it from her dad, because Saul was a very prideful person. Um, very respectable person, by the way. Uh, very dignified person. Somehow I always think of uh, who's the actor? Uh, um, oh, the, the the famous Hollywood actor that played James Bond for years, Sean Connery. Uh, for some reason, I always have the image of Sean Connery and Saw. I don't know why. Um, but the 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 man was a dignified man, and his daughter was a dignified princess. Remember, Mikhail was a princess. She was raised in royalty. And for her to see her husband acting like a common person out in the street was probably very deeply offensive to her. Um, but there was more to it than that. The, the garment, the ephod garment, is a priestly garment. And the fact that you remember in that verse, one of the first verses in that, as the ark is coming up, what does it say? He took so many paces, and what did David do? He sacrificed an ox. Now, does that strike you as unusual for a king? He's not, he's, not a, he's not from the tribe of Aaron. He's from the tribe of Judah. He hasn't got any right to sacrifice. Not in a priestly way. I mean, for his personal sin, yeah. But he has no right, as an ironic Levitical priest, to sacrifice on the part of the people, which he did. And that is a tip-off that something else is going on here that we are going to get into in Psalm 110 when it talks about this business of the priesthood after Melchizedek. Because David is assuming the prerogatives of a non-Jewish priesthood when he's doing all this. And that's all embedded in this. There's a lot that goes on here in this thing. That's why so many Psalms root back to 2 Samuel 6. That is an extremely difficult passage to work through. Uh, but the uncovering is an uncovering. Um, we can't um, write it off. Uh, if you look at the concordance, you'll see what we're talking about. Um, 
Um, so it's one of those passages that there are other passages in Sam, and you have to get used to it because it shocks people um, that these things are recorded in the Old Testament because we're afraid, oh gosh, what a role model that would be. Um, and, and it's true. It's not being put forward as a role model. The Holy Spirit is reporting things that happened. Um, the style of literature of Samuel is written after the same style as the heroic literature of the Greeks, who I believe borrowed the style from the Jews. But it's, it's, they're adventure stories, and they record all kinds of things. One of the uh, other things in Second Samuel, when David uh, kills all his enemies, he goes and he uh, circumcises them all and brings back his foreskins and counts them in front of everybody. Um, and, and, and he does so right in front of Saul and Michal, by the way. That's one of the dowry. So, I mean, where do we get this as a, as a... This is not quite a good image. I don't think you'd find it in a Christian movie. But the point there is that this is the sort of tough stuff that appears there in the Hebrew Old Testament. And I just mentioned that because I, I just think we need to, as Christians, appreciate the fact that the, God is not a prissy God. Uh, if we think that some sin or something's going to shock him, uh, he's already talked about it before. And that's not to excuse sin. That is not to ex uh, to, to, uh, for us to be crude. It's rather to show that God works with that. And as Professor Hendricks of Seminary always used to say, when God paints a picture of man, he paints him warts and all. To show that, in fact, God knows all of our idiosyncrasies, stuff that we don't even want to admit about ourselves, and he goes on working with us. And if we're shocked by some things that we read in the scriptures, uh, I think the problem is ours. Because it sort of betrays the fact that we think that there's a certain um, good work that must, we have, must have a sort of minimum good work here in order to get qualified before God. And that's works. Now, again, appreciate, we're not excusing this. I mean, he's, we're not excusing some of the rough conversation that goes on. I mean, if you could translate, one of my shocks when I started learning Hebrew was some of the language that's used in the Old Testament. I mean, it is pretty descriptive language. Not, not in the Psalms, although in the Psalms is that passage about, come on, God, get your hands out of your pockets and move it. Now, can you imagine somebody in a prayer meeting getting up and accusing God of having his hands in his pocket? Well, I think, you know, I'd be kind of shocked if somebody said that. But it's in the Psalms. And that's the way these guys talked. So... It's just reality. It's just the, the grubby reality of the fallen human race, and here we are in all of our crud. And you know what's amazing? God in His grace works with it. And so that's the way you want to look at it. Not that it condones it. I mean, God works with us as sin. He doesn't condone the sin. But He, he graciously works with sinners. So we must, we must always remember that. And those, those passages... And the sad thing is that because so few pastors... Uh, when they leave seminary, most of them throw out their Greek text if they ever learned it in the first place. And most of them never learned their Hebrew, so they don't bother with that either. Now, thankfully, in our day of computers, uh, you can get some good Bible study aids and 
Um, if you haven't been trained the language, pick up some of it. I mean, that's good. That's a good tool. Um, I'm so glad our pastor is, is, is doing some research and uh, using some of the tools of language now. Um, not as good as knowing the language, but, but it's good. So, anyway, get back to ascension and session. Maybe you've got the impression, and I hope you've sort of got the impression from the notes and from what we said tonight, that we're moving into an area that um, I think is going to be very interesting about what, the, what is going on in the spiritual realm of the cosmos um, that is related to us as Christians. We are doing something that is moving history forward even though we don't see it directly in, say, the political area, we don't see it in the sociological relationships necessarily, we don't see a millennium dawning on the planet, but nevertheless something is going on. And it starts, that's why I labeled this first chapter, the heavenly origin of the church. The church did not start because of a sociological problem in, in Palestine. The church directly is created from on high. And the first, therefore, step in understanding this is to understand who created the church. It's the Lord Jesus from his Father's right hand. It is not the Lord Jesus from the planet Earth. It is not the Lord Jesus prior to Pentecost. It is not the Lord Jesus prior to the cross. It is the Lord Jesus in his resurrection body sitting at the Father's right hand who has started the church. The church didn't exist until it started at a certain point in time on the day of Pentecost. So all this is kind of leading up to what is going on. Why did he start the church? Well, I think you can get a hint of it by looking at Romans, at uh, Daniel 7. It's the Son of Man is doing something. He's being given dominion, and you know what eventually is going to happen. So whatever's going on with us, it's a step to get over there and to get to that goal in which he will bring in the fifth kingdom. That's tied, tied together. So it makes our lives meaningful, and I want us to appreciate that, that the trials and tribulations we go through every day have a cosmic dimension to them. And I, I find that kind of comforting to realize that that we're not walking in trivia. That the little prayer request or the struggle to trust in a promise and the faith rest drill, um, the triumph of seeing, wow, you know, look what the Lord just did. Um, those are, you know, sometimes we think those are just little or just in our lives. But they, they, they are like dropping pebbles in a, in a lake and the, and the ripples ripple out. Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, Laura is uh, is uh, getting. Um, into the area when she says she proceeds uh, that's good Laura that when the Holy Spirit comes he comes in a way he never did before see the Holy Spirit did work on earth prior
but he worked in a different way. You know that, that passage, and we'll go through it, where Christ says, the Holy Spirit was with you, but he will be in you. There's a shift in prepositions. So the Holy Spirit is doing something different now than he was before. And it's tied up with empowering the church on some sort of mission that the church does. Now, in that passage in Psalm 68, remember we didn't cover it this part tonight, we did last week. Remember what, after Jehovah ascends to the mountain, what does he do? He receives booty. Booty from who? Booty from the, the people he's defeated. Prisoners of war and booty. And those were typical of the ancient Near Eastern view of a god. See, the picture of Psalm 68 permeated the whole ancient Near East. And you can read the other non-biblical literature and you can see they tried to mimic this. They tried to counterfeit it. Satan always tries to counterfeit things. And so they have these stories about when Tutmos, for example, finishes his, his campaigns of conquest, he comes back with the booty and the prisoners and he offers them up in the temples of Egypt to the gods who gave him victory. In reality, what it was, he's paying off the priesthood. <laughs> now, they had to have money to keep the boys employed. But it was given a religious motif of grandeur that he was bringing back all this booty and all the wealth and all the prisoners and giving them and sacrificing them to, to the gods. Well, David is using a very similar thing in Psalm 68. He has conquered, peace has come, and now Jehovah gets the booty and he gets the lead captivity captive. Well, that's understandable, okay, in the Old Testament context of a physical war. The question is, how do we understand that in the light of Ephesians 4? When did Jesus conquer anybody? And where is he getting his booty from? And who are the prisoners of war? What, what does Paul see there? Because remember, Paul takes that verb, he receives the gifts to he gives the gifts. There's a switch. And that's, Paul knows enough about the text. He's, he didn't make a mistake. He, he's doing something with the text there. He's adding revelation that the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Paul, at the Father's right hand, is receiving prisoners of whom? Prisoners, his prisoners that he's captured in a battle. Now, what's the battle that's going on if the prisoners are the people who he gives back to the church that are gifted. Because in context, who are, who is he giving the gifts to? He's giving, the gifts are gifted people, right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and so forth. So the picture is the Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand, who has got in a battle, and that's the key, we want to get a feel of what this battle is. He's in battle, he gets prisoners, he brings them to himself, and then he gives them to the church. But we know in Ephesians who they are. They're the gifted people. Well, where did they come from? Where did Paul come from? See, think of himself. He was an apostle. What was he before he became an apostle? He was a persecutor of the church. Whose program was he carrying out? Satan's program. So, he lost. In this particular tactic, in this particular engagement, the battle occurred on the Damascus Road. And the Lord Jesus Christ said to Paul, 
why are you persecuting me? And Paul became a Christian. Now, the, the implied... So you see this theme? This sets up a theme here that we're going to see again and again. What's going on is that when someone trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and passed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, what has just happened as far as Satan's dominion goes? You've got... We won one. Satan's lost. Satan minus one, Lord Jesus Christ plus one. So now, when a person trusts in Jesus Christ, it's not just an evangelistic conversion. There's more to this than that. There's an entire defeat of the kingdom of darkness that's occurred because someone trusted in Jesus Christ. He has brought to the Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ refurbishes that prisoner of war and hands him off to the church as a gifted person. And Paul's the epitome of that, and that's why Paul, I'm sure, picked Psalm 68. He sensed that about himself. And that was a vehicle the Holy Spirit used to, to wake Paul up to this wonderful truth of what's going on here. So what we're, going to, what we're getting into when we get into this ascension and session business, we're trying to get the imagery straight in our heads so that when we do come to Pentecost, we understand why Pentecost is happening. It's happening to execute something that's being managed from the heaven, from the Father's right hand. There's a war going on. It's being managed by the Lord Jesus Christ because God says in Psalm 110, what does he say? Sit at my right hand. Until what? I've made your enemies my footstool. Now who is it that worships the Father in heaven? Remember in the book of Revelation? I looked and beheld and there were people from all nations on earth gathered around the throne saying, Lord, thou art worthy. Where they all come from? They're all prisoners prisoners from the kingdom of darkness and they are at his footstool they're worshipping him so we have a marvelous introduction to what we're going to in the notes I mentioned this we are now being introduced to, a, to what we call the angelic conflict that is the theme of the church age there's a conflict in the invisible realm that's going on all around us and we're fools if we think the, the conflict is just culture it's more than culture there's a demonic in a pro-king battle that's raging all around us. And that's why when, you know, in the infantry they shout, incoming, you know, uh, when, when a round's coming in. And that's what all of a sudden, you know, you're sitting there and boom, something happens. We've got to have the smarts to realize you can't explain what just happened then by somebody's psychology, somebody's sociology, or something else, you've got to put it in a larger context. There's a battle going on here. And we, we take casualties too. And we've got to understand where we're taking casualties and why we're taking casualties. But so many Christians just go on oblivious like, you know, this is perfect peace kingdom. No, it's not. We're in the middle of a war here. So Christ has ascended the, the, to the right hand and we want to do Psalm 110 next week and we're going to do uh, Psalm 2 and then we're going to move in and we're going to deal with this whole thing of judgment salvation. That's going to be the doctrinal picture, the doctrinal truth to attach to the ascension and session. And part of the judgment salvation, remember we covered it, what are the other two events in history that mirror judgment salvation? Noah's flood and the exodus. So the flood and the exodus prepare us to understand the church age and what's happening in the church age. And in both of those previous events, 
God judged nature as well as man, didn't he? It wasn't just psychological. Religion is not just psychological. Was it in Egypt? What did God do? He physically did things. What did he do in the flood? He sure did physically. What is he doing now? Well, I don't see him do anything physical. But he's doing something in behind scenes right now that's as traumatic and dramatic as Noah's flood and as the Exodus. And that's the whole story of what we're trying to open the door here to, and why I'm hitting over the ascension session. That's why I'm going over the faith drill now. I said that was going to tie into what we're doing. And that's where we're moving. So you can see that when you claim a promise, just the simple act of claiming a promise, what you and I see, remember I said that when you claim the promise, you want to see the folly. You see the folly of not claiming it, and that adds to your confidence. Because every time we claim a promise in the middle of a conflict, we want another victory. Because we have pulled down and cast down the high thoughts and the things that blaspheme against God. And again, every time we throw down a thought, we're throwing down a transmission that's being targeted to us. And that's why it's so important to walk by faith and to claim the promises and get used to cycling through and resting in these promises. Because as you do, day after day, day after day, you may not realize it, but you are doing vast damage in the kingdom of darkness because the powers and principalities want to hold on to you. They want to immobilize us because if they can immobilize us, what can they stave off? The final kingdom. We are involved in how fast that kingdom comes. Because when we fail the Lord, when we fall apart, when we do these things, we stave off the ultimate victory. We're not advancing. We're not moving. We're not taking ground back. <coughs> so there's, there's a little preview of, it, of, of where we're going in this. And I turn this out. So next week, uh, if you look at Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, and think about what we did tonight with Daniel 7 and Psalm 68, and you'll see the same motif. Look for things that are fulfilled in Christ, and look for things in those Psalms that are not yet fulfilled in Christ. And you get a better feel for this. Okay.